Recently, a research firm, Civic Science, polled people on this question. Should Americans, as part of their school curriculum, learn Arabic numerals? 55% said no. Do you know what Arabic numerals look like? If you want to see an example, we actually post them every Sunday in our sanctuary on these hymn boards on either side of the pulpit. Carrie and Chris meticulously put up those hymn numbers. Those are Arabic numerals. They might look familiar. Arabic numbers are American numbers. They are what we learn in every school. It is what we know. Through a long and winding history, Western culture ended up adopting Arabic numbers rather than Roman numerals as a system of counting. The article where I read about this survey goes on to point out that today many words in the English have Arabic roots. A short list would include admiral, alchemy, alcove, almanac, mask, nadir, sugar, syrup, tariff, and zenith. Some scholars even think that the word check, which you get, the kind you get from a bank, comes from the Arabic word sak, which means written document. Language is a powerful tool, but it is not an immovable one. Language is a constantly shifting, adapting resource for communication. Shakespeare himself used spellings that we would no longer consider proper beyond the third grade. What we know is English has absorbed many words from the Arabic world, but also from the Anglo-Saxon, the Germanic, and other regions and countries. Even so, we live in a time when 55% of Americans reject the idea of learning Arabic numerals. We as people fear difference. This isn't new. We fear being moved from the place and position, the philosophies and identities that we know. We can see this fear in our story from Genesis today, the story of Babel. The renowned rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, points out in his study of the Tower of Babel that just before this story, in Genesis 10, the people have been divided into 70 nations and 70 languages, and God has blessed them with that diversity. God has gifted them with this variety of languages, a whole myriad of cultures in which to worship the one true God. And now they abandon those languages and speak only one all using the same words. They leave behind God's diversity. They have rejected the gifts they were given. We don't know the reason. Sachs speculates maybe this was an indictment of the Assyrian Empire that was conquering the regions and forcing everyone to be under one culture. We don't know precisely why people abandoned God's gifts of diversity. But it does seem that the people are afraid They are afraid of not having a name for themselves. They are afraid of being scattered and sent out into the world. In verse 2, we heard that they had migrated from the east, and by verse 4, they are scared of becoming immigrants again. They want to forget their history, stake their claim, reach to the heavens, abandon their diversity, and fall in line behind one language and one city and one identity. We might know something of this fear and of this response. We can look around and see this response writ large and small in our own lives and in our nation. So where is God in the midst of all this? 
Where is God in the midst of all this change, all this difference, in the midst of the new things that scare us? Let us turn to our Acts reading today. Acts, the book of Acts from chapter 2, verse 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in their native tongue, in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in our own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, oh, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prosify, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show portents in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but I have read this passage many times, many different seasons of life. I love the story of Pentecost, particularly since we don't talk about the Holy Spirit much in the Presbyterian Church. And I've particularly grown to love it since coming here to Second, where the Arts Committee worked so hard to remind us of what it must have felt like to have those flames dancing over our heads. I have often heard this Pentecost story told as the healing of the story of the Tower of Babel, as the bookend to a scattering that happened thousands of years before. I've thought of this story of Pentecost as being the story of how everyone comes back together and speaks in one language again, just as God intended. But this is wrong. And it was not until I read and studied both passages this week that I realized how wrong I was. Pentecost is not the story of people all speaking one language. 
It is the story of people speaking in their own language and listening to each other and understanding each other. It is a story of people speaking with their native words and having those words heard and affirmed, having their different voices understood. Pentecost is not a story of people forgetting everything that made them different. Rather, it is a story of people remembering what God can do with diverse differences. Pentecost is a story of God showing up to a room with a multitude of nationalities and celebrating the sprawling variety, the creative collection of differences. Scripture says that the Holy Spirit rested on each of them, on every person present, on those who were local and those who had migrated from far away. It wasn't just on Peter who could preach or one group of people to lead the way. The Holy Spirit showed up and was flickering on the shoulders of all those people who were gathered. Also, it is worth noting that the Spirit isn't showing up as some gentle breeze that tickles the cheeks like a fan in a glamour photo shoot. No, the Holy Spirit shows up with a force that could terrify It sounds like a violent wind. It fills the house. Fire leaps out of nowhere. Whatever happened in that room, the writer of Acts wants us to know it was frightening. So what happens when we encounter difference? Where is God when we encounter change and diversity and things that might frighten us? God is right there made present by the Holy Spirit, fierce and forceful, bright and blazing. God is right there as the Holy Spirit flickering on each shoulder, anointing each person as each speaks in their own native tongue. God is right there helping these different people listen to and understand each other. Pentecost is not telling us a story of a cacophony of voices shouting over each other. Pentecost is telling us about a symphony, about a moment when these collection of people come together and listen to what others are saying, listen to the voices of each other, and they start to build a church from all that variety of choices and voices and words. This is a miracle. As I was thinking about this this week, I realized a small example of what happens in Pentecost happens each week when we hold our hymn book. Here in the hymn book that you have in your pew every week is a wide variety of songs that celebrate God in Christ. And yes, the main language is English, but there are other languages in there. There are languages we do not know, words that might feel funny in our mouths, There are notes and pitches and key signatures and rhythm patterns that might make us a little nervous. There are folk tunes and drinking songs, commissioned hymns and Gregorian chants. There's a wide variety. Our first hymn today uses a tune from Wales. Our second hymn today was written in Japan after World War II as the country grappled with their history of imperialism. Our final hymn is written by a contemporary hymn writer who adapts an Appalachian tune. We come together as a congregation and sing because we believe that here we can discover how the Spirit moves through different sounds and shapes and tunes and voices. 
We sing together, not just with one person leading us or a band or a choir singing all the parts, but we sing together with our variety of abilities and gifts because we believe that God shows up in the midst of these differences, uniting us together as a body of worship before sending us out into the world carrying forth our own voice, which by the power of the Holy Spirit might share God's good gifts with the whole world. What happens when the disciples encounter different peoples, when they face the scary force of a violent wind? Our scripture today tells us that they meet God. They meet God in the Holy Spirit, which Christ has promised to them. Our lives as disciples of Christ, as citizens of this nation, indeed as human beings alive in this world, mean that we have to learn how to face things that scare us. We can try to hunker down and build walls, but walls do not last. The people of Babel tried that already. The builders of Jericho tried that. The disciples tried that in the days after Jesus' death when they locked the door to an upper room. But Jesus comes through locked doors, the Spirit busts through protective barriers, and God scatters our best laid plans, pushing us out into the world, out beyond our comfort zone. The Holy Spirit is showing up and pushing us to learn things that will confuse and discomfort us. We are going to have to learn Arabic numerals and words. We are going to have to learn why some people wear yarmulkes and some people wear hijabs and some people wear turbans. We're going to have to learn about gender identities and pluralism and the roots of racism. By the witness of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit, we are going to have to remember that our people, too, were once immigrants, and our people also had to find an open door in this nation in order to sit in these pews today. We might not like to learn these things. We might not like to have to face these histories. We might not want to confront what is different, what is strange, what is challenging in each other. We might not want to confront what is challenging within our own selves. We might not want to look into our own hearts and name the shadowy caverns that we find there. But we are not God's. And our God will not rest until the whole world is opened up, filled with the good gifts of the Spirit. God will not rest until we go forth with our different voices, united by our ability to proclaim the good news in our own tongue, to share the love of Christ, to proclaim how the Holy Spirit is poured out on women and men, enslaved and free, old and young, on Jews and Gentiles, Arabs and Elamites and Libyans. It can feel like our nation is at a time of crisis, when we are struggling with who we are as citizens and whose history we'll choose to lift up and revere. We have faced this crisis before. We are a nation of immigrants. Yes, some were forced to immigrate here and some chose freely, but the United States of America remains a nation of immigrants, and we have always had to respond to that fact at different points in our history. We've responded in different ways, both by writing the inscription on the Statue of Liberty, 
and by empowering the terrorism of the KKK. Now we face questions about what to do with this diversity again. One scholar of interfaith work describes this as a molten moment where it feels like everything is on fire and melting, but out of which we can shape something new, something strong for the next generation. I wonder what we will do with this moment. We could use this moment to force everyone to be the same, to abandon the gifts of diversity and fixate on building the tallest tower in the land. Or we could use this moment to exalt our various voices, to listen to our diverse melodies, to connect our differences into the symphony of a more creative, more comprehensive, more compassionate country. Through a rabbit hole in the internet this week, I came across a few letters written by George Washington. And even after 200 years, Washington's words still sound marvelously relevant. In the first, Washington writes to an Irishman soon after the nation's defining molten moment, the Revolutionary War. As people are wrestling with what the USA shall be, Washington defines it thus. The bosom of America is open to receive not only the opulent and respectable stranger, but the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions, whom we shall welcome to a participation of all rights and privileges. And then, seven years later, when Washington was a new president, a congregation, a Jewish congregation from Rhode Island wrote to him, asking if they too would be welcome in this new United States. Washington wrote back to this congregation and said, indeed, they would find a home in this country, stating, the citizens of the United States of America have a right to applaud themselves for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy, a policy worthy of imitation. For happily, the government of the United States gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance. Washington concludes the letter with these beautiful words. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there will be none to make him afraid. May the Father of all mercies scatter light and not darkness in our paths, and make all in our several vocations useful here, and in his due time and way, everlastingly happy. Once a year, we celebrate Pentecost. But these are words that carry forth throughout the year and remind us that we are in a molten moment, a place where things might seem to be melting down, but really we can see them as being reshaped, just as the church had to be reshaped out of the fear and trembling of the disciples. We are in a molten moment as citizens of this country, and as disciples who are trying to be better followers of Jesus the Christ. The Spirit is rushing in. The Spirit is resting on our shoulders. The Spirit is giving us a chance to listen to each other and celebrate all our voices, tongues, and talents, languages, identities, and gifts. This is tough. This is scary. But this... 
this is the work of the Almighty God. May we join him. Let us pray. Lord, you gather us from many places, with many joys and concerns in our hearts, with many things that worry us and excite us, and you hold us in your arms. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, pour it out upon us now, and send us forth to share your song with the whole world. In your holy name we pray, amen.